This is Unfilter, episode 313, for June 4th, 2020. Now, the harder you are, the tougher you are, the less likely it is that you're going to be hit. There's a movement. We found out they're delivering supplies to various places in various states. Your people know about it now. But we found out many things. It's like a movement. And it's a movement that if you don't put it down, it'll get worse and worse. This is like Occupy Wall Street. It was a disaster. Until one day somebody said, that's enough. And they just went in and wiped them out. And the last time I heard the name Occupied Wall Street, until today. Hello, friends, and welcome to 313 of your protracted protest podcast. My name is Chris, and holy smokes, as they used to say, (laughs) things have really kicked off since we last got together. As I record this, Lady Jupes is going down the road. I am probably in southern Oregon, if you're listening to this around the time this came out. Of course, that's assuming I was able to make it through downtown Seattle. But we'll get to that because, holy crap, you guys. Dozens, maybe scores of American cities are bracing for new protests and potentially new violence tonight, pushing the pandemic out of the headlines. Outrage over police killings of black people has fueled unrest from coast to coast. As evening begins here in Washington, police are firing tear gas, deploying flashbangs to disperse peaceful protests near the White House. Additional National Guard troops have been called in. President Trump spoke defiantly in the Rose Garden just moments ago. So we're going to go through a lot of this bit by bit and break out individual important pieces. But let's let's start actually just yesterday. Today, I have strongly recommended to every governor to deploy the National Guard in sufficient numbers that we dominate the streets. Mayors and governors must establish an overwhelming law enforcement presence until the violence has been quelled. If a city or state refuses to take the actions that are necessary to defend the life and property of their residents, then I will deploy the United States military and quickly solve the problem for them. I am also taking swift and decisive action to protect our great capital, Washington. President Trump just moments ago. Our White House correspondent, Michelle Sender, lays out how the day unfolded. Historic protests, a nation reeling, and an uncertain future ahead. Today, Americans across the country woke up to burned buildings, shattered storefronts, and walls littered with graffiti. This is the aftermath of a weekend filled with some of the largest demonstrations seen in a generation. They erupted over the police killing of George Floyd. He was a black man who died after a white police officer kneeled on his neck in more than 140 cities across all 50 states. Tens of thousands took to the streets. Demonstrators from Boston to Los Angeles rallied against the disproportionate police killings of black people. The protests were largely peaceful, but with nightfall in some places, the tone changed and cities burned. Conflicts amongst the crowds surfaced. Footage on social media showed the moment demonstrators in Washington tackled a white man to the ground as he attempted to provoke police. 
boy, has it been something watching Seattle. When you are in a city, you get a lot more context and detail than what makes it out. So I'll share some of that with you in a bit. But the scene she's talking about here is in Seattle, where the protesters started developing mechanisms to out people causing trouble. This has been an interesting divide that has really developed since the last episode. And that is that the media and the people on the scene are trying to make the case very loudly that there are provocateurs and then there are the peaceful protesters and there's a division. The Seattle folks got clever enough where now what they started to do is when somebody begins to riot or loot, the peaceful protesters all take a knee. So they all go down and whoever's left standing is the one causing the trouble and easy for the cops to point out or or to catch. However, when that's not available, they have resorted to actually tackling the looters and dragging them to the police. Moment, demonstrators in Washington tackled a white man to the ground as he attempted to provoke police. In New York City, demonstrators came head to head with police and looting disrupted parts of Fifth Avenue. There was similar trouble in Washington, Philadelphia and elsewhere. A number of cities imposed curfews. Nationwide, at least 23 states and the District of Columbia called out more than 17,000 National Guardsmen. But in Minneapolis today, George Floyd's brother Terrence spoke to crowds appealing for calm. If I'm not over here wilding out, if I'm not over here blowing up stuff, if I'm not over here messing up my community, then what are y'all doing? What are y'all doing? Y'all doing nothing because that's not going to bring my brother back at all. In some cities, police expressed solidarity with the peaceful demonstrators when protesters in Washington struggled to wash tear gas from their eyes. In New York City, some police cruisers drove into crowds. Hell of an image, that one. I'm sure a lot of you saw that. And in Atlanta, two police officers were fired after dragging black college students out of their cars and tasing them. Very, very disturbing. It was like the police were showing no restraint at all. Um, and I just found that really hard to watch. But for me, things got a lot more interesting when the audio to Trump's call with the governors leaked. And I want to go through some of this with you because a few choice phrases have made it out into reporting. But there's a lot more on the call. It was a 55-minute call. And I listened to the whole thing. So I grabbed a few clips for you. And in the right off the bat, in the very beginning, there is a big surprise to me. We're going to take care of it. We're going to take care of it. And we've uh, got a number of people here that you'll be seeing a lot of. General Milley is here. Now what? He's head of Joint Chiefs of Staff. A fighter, a warrior, had a lot of victories. General Milley, who is an advisor, he's not actually, well, actually, Nancy Pelosi will explain in a moment, so maybe I'll just wait for her. But he's not actually directly in the line of chain of command here with the military. He's an advisor. But it's a, here's a theory that I've thrown out here on the show before. And I think if you listen to this theory and then we play this clip back, I, I think you, you, you'll hear what I'm saying. So let me break it down. I'm a believer that the that Trump is persuaded by the last strong personality that he talked to. And that's why you will see these radical swings in Trump's opinion about COVID, about the lockdowns, whatever it is, 
because whatever personality has gotten into him and pitched him something that he believes, he, he just all in, he switches. And he seems to have a persuasion towards generals. If you look at who he's hired and who he often re- speaks about respectfully, it's these generals. And I think we have a situation here where U.S. Army General Mark Miley, or Milley, however it's said, has gotten in front of Trump because he's an advisor. He's already in the White House. And he's told Trump, you got to dominate the battle space. He is here. He's head of Joint Chiefs of Staff, a fighter, a warrior, had a lot of victories, had no losses. And he hates to see the way it's being handled in the various states. And I've just put him in charge. Uh, the Attorney General is here. I've just put him in charge. I've just put him in charge of what? So this Joint Chiefs of Staff General gets in front of Trump, convinces him that we need to dominate the battle space, and Trump's response is, okay, you're in charge of it. And he's an odd duck. In fact, some protesters caught some cell phone video of him down watching the protests the evening of this announcement. Freedom of speech. Uh, That's perfect. This is him. He's on the street. It cuts off. I don't have any more than this, but I'll play the rest. Uh, but it doesn't. He's, it's already in progress when the video starts. He's in camo um, casual. <laughs> he's wearing camo casual. Uh, it's a it's a it's a military casual outfit. I don't know how to describe these. I know there's a name for it. He's got a hat on. I'm sure somebody will tell me in the Discord. All camoed out, and he's down there observing the situation after that on um ominous. <laughs> ominous statement that he's in charge now and you could see how this could work for him mr president i've been down on the ground i've surveyed the battle space and in my opinion sir and he says it in this very official military tone and i think trump just laps it up freedom of speech uh, that's perfectly fine we support that we took an oath of allegiance to the constitution of the united states of america to do that to protect everyone's rights and that's what we do we've got the dc national guard out here and i'm just checking their seeing how well they're doing that's all a little defensive there. A little defensive, I think. <laughs> I, I find it interesting, too, how he kind of runs it all together. He just has said that a few times, I think. You know what I'm saying? America? Um, so he's somebody to watch. He doesn't actually hold any direct power, as far as I know, as an advisor. But now he's in charge of what? I don't know. And under what authority? I don't know. And what he'll be doing? I don't know. But I found that interesting. I want to play that moment for you again, because you're not hearing this played anywhere else. And I think it's pretty telling about what's going on behind the scenes. We're to take care of it. We're going to take care of it. And we've uh, got a number of people here that you'll be seeing a lot of. General Milley is here. He's head of Joint Chiefs of Staff, a fighter, a warrior, had a lot of victories, had no losses. And he hates to see the way it's being handled the various states, and I've just put him in charge. Uh, the Attorney General is here. But- I just can't. I'd, so we'll see where that goes. Um, and then he, he, as you heard in the opening clip, uh, he says this is a movement, and they're delivering supplies. I'll play that again for you, too. Now, the harder you are, the tougher you are, the less likely it is that you're going to be hit. This is a movement. We found out they're delivering supplies to various places in various states. Your people know about it now. But we found out Many things is like a movement, and it's a movement that if you don't put it down, it'll get worse and worse. This is like Occupy Wall Street. It was a disaster until one day somebody said, that's enough, and they just went in and wiped them out. And the last time I heard the name Occupy Wall Street until today. 
is interesting because I'd been thinking that too um, about Occupied Wall Street and how it kind of just went away. But I think what we're seeing out in the streets is the knock-on effect that started during Occupy Wall Street. A lot of the fundamental disparities that Occupy Wall Street was about haven't been addressed. In fact, all of the financial ones have gotten much worse, especially now that we're in another recess and we are still still calculating the cost of the lockdowns. And the other element of this that's hard to quantify is how many of these destructive actors are from outside groups. It's been brought up a lot. A lot of people have talked about that. I'm curious to know if you believe that, what you think about that. Let me know at unfilter.show slash discord. Minnesota's governor estimates that about 80% of those being destructive were from outside of the state. That's quite a bit, 80%. Peter. More specific about numbers. I don't think you're saying that 10,000 people have come in from out of state or that every bit of violence was done by people who were coming in from out of state. So where does, did that sort of cross over from earlier demonstrations to what's going on now? And, and again, what kind of numbers are you talking about and what can you share? Yeah, I'll let these folks go. Yeah, no, it's a good question. But Peter's question is about how do we know this? And I want to just be very clear, as I said earlier in the week, This is not about saying, oh, this isn't us. It's everybody from everywhere else. We understand that the catalyst for this was Minnesotans. And Minnesotans' Minnesotans inability to deal with inequality, inequities, and quite honestly, the racism that has persisted. Quite the pause. I, I am not denying that. But what we're at right now, and we're trying to get numbers on this, and I will try, and what I'm asking the media to help us on, we're going to start releasing who some of these people are. And they'll be able to start tracing that uh, that history of where they're at and what they're doing on the dark web and how they're organizing. But I'm not trying to say that. I think our best estimate right now that I heard is about 20% is what we think are Minnesotans, and about 80% are outside. Wow. Um, so I'm, I'm not trying to deflect in any way. I'm not trying to say there aren't Minnesotans amongst this group. We know that we have folks that, that may not be there, too. But the vast majority right now, and I think the, the difference is, and this is where Mayor Carter, Mayor Fry spoke eloquently on this, um, our heart and our solidarity are with folks who understand what happened Monday night to George Floyd um, must, must see justice and we must fix. But these folks are not them. So I, I, that's a good question, and we'll get more data. I think Governor Walls did a good job there of walking that line of saying, no, we really think it is people outside, but we're not trying to defer blame. We still accept we screwed stuff up. The the general and Trump, when they were talking about the protesters, they used language that terrifies me. They call it a battle space. They talk about dominating with massive numbers. There's all of these really kind of scary military terms that some of these clips you're about to hear are going to throw around that I think are, and I use the word scary because when you're talking about the United States military and how powerful they are, and you're talking about our cities as a battle space, uh, shit. <laughs> you know, that's like the citizens are bringing a knife fight to, um, or I'm sorry, that's like bringing a knife to a machine gun fight. I mean, we are, we're screwed as citizens. We're screwed there. But Barr claims it's, uh, the, the attorney general claims it's not just about domination of the streets. But it's about freeing up police resources so that they can pursue legal action on the bad actors. The president said, uh, reminded me, 
the reason, you know, we have to control the streets is not just to bring peace to that town, but to give us the opportunity to get the bad actors, because they are going to go elsewhere. We're picking up information that when they run into a tough nut with a strong police force and National Guard, they're looking for secondary targets in cities where they can go and overwhelm the local police forces. So in several of your states, you know, that's what we're hearing. Uh, so that's why it's so imperative. We can't like lock them all these people. We have to take out the professional instigators and the leadership group. And the way to do that is to start with a strong statement in the major cities. If you're weak and don't dominate your streets, they're going to stay with you until you finally do it. you got to make a strong statement. It's all about massive numbers. This is why they're imploring governors and mayors to call in the National Guard. Let us bring in the military, because if you have numbers, you'll win. Uh, and, and to dominate the battle space, put them in fixed sites, fixed site security at key points in the ground, and you have the police as mobile forces who do the arresting and law enforcement. It's a very effective technique. It's been used for years in the past. Uh, we have activated uh, National Guard in support of uh, civil authorities uh, on average for civil disturbances one every three years in the last 100 years. Uh, so it's a very effective technique, strongly encouraged uh, to mobilize and start alerting today as many guards as you think you need uh, in order to uh, establish law and order in various cities. Fifty-five cities had protests, uh, 54 of 55 cities had protests in the last 24 hours, uh, and 22 of them were violent at moderate to severe levels. Uh, but the rest were peaceful. Fifty-five to 54 protests, 22 of which were violent. And if you dominate them with numbers, they'll give up, I guess is the theory. And to sort of put the icing on all of this is the National Guard has been widely deployed around the U.S. already for COVID, for whatever reason. I guess to pretend like nurses, I'm not sure. No disrespect to the National to the Natch Guard, but I mean, it's pretty convenient that they're already deployed everywhere and in very significant numbers. All right, Secretary of Defense. Thank you, Mr. President. If I could build on your comments and uh, Attorney General's comments to give some quick stats. So, of course, Department of Defense remains in full support of the state, the states, the governors, the Department of Justice, federal law enforcement. Right now, we have 17,000 folks deployed in the National Guard in 29 states. But I will tell you, the bulk of the states have fewer than 200 people. Fewer than 200 people deployed in the bulk of the states that call it their guard. So, as the President and the AG have rightly pointed out, uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota has done a fantastic job. Uh, by Saturday morning, after uh, uh, the chairman of the Chiefs of Staff and I spoke to the governor, they increased their presence tenfold, and I think the evidence was uh, was clear on Saturday night and Sunday night. And so, uh, at my urging, I agree, we need to dominate the battle space. Uh, you have deep resources in the Guard. I stand ready, the chairman stands ready, the head of the National Guard stands ready to fully support you in terms of helping mobilize the Guard and doing what they need to do. Uh, again, most of the Guard has not been called up. There's only a few states. In fact, I count two states where more than a 1,000 troops have been called up. I think the sooner that you mass and dominate the battle space, the quicker uh, this dissipates and uh, and we can get back to a, 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 the right normal. Sure. I don't know what it is politically when you don't want to call up people. They're ready, willing, and able. They want to fight for the country. I don't know what it is. Someday you'll have to explain it to me. Yeah, maybe someday somebody will explain it to you. Just a reminder, the battle space is American cities and the 
people they're battling are the taxpayers who pay every single person's payroll on that call. Just as a reminder about that. That's who they're talking about. They're talking about attacking the very people that pay the taxes that make them rich and fat. And Trump really was hitting this dominate point extremely hard. And he indicated about plans to flex in D.C. to sort of set an example. And the word is dominate. If you don't dominate your city and your state, uh, they're going to walk away with you. And we're doing it in Washington and D.C. We're going to do something that uh, people haven't seen before. But uh, you're going to have total domination. So let's talk about that thing people hadn't seen before, how Trump was setting an example in D.C. by flexing. Uh, Jim Acosta is over at the White House for us, our chief White House correspondent. I want to get the latest uh, on what the president of the United States, Jim, is saying and what what we're learning over there. Uh, I know you got an update. It all starts rather normal. Jim Acosta is just checking in with Wolf. It's just another update from the White House. Yeah, well, and and just uh, before I get to what the president was saying earlier today and what he may say this evening, uh, I I just want to report something we just saw a few moments ago that is pretty breathtaking. We just saw nine large military-style vehicles roll through the White House complex, uh, going from the south side of the White House complex all the way through on West Executive Drive, which separates the White House and the Eisenhower Executive Office Building. Those military vehicles have now moved on to Pennsylvania Avenue, the pedestrian part of Pennsylvania Avenue, just outside the White House. While Trump was speaking, something rather shocking was happening to peaceful protesters right there on the streets. Ahead of the 7 p.m. curfew in Washington, D.C., flashbangs and tear gas were used to disperse protesters in Lafayette Park, across the street from the White House. This as the president spoke from the Rose Garden following days of notable silence. If a city or state refuses to take the actions that are necessary to defend the life and property of their residents, then I will deploy the United States military Afterward, he walked across the park to St. John's Church, damaged during protests Sunday night. Earlier on a conference call, he called governors weak for their response to protesters. You have to dominate. If you don't dominate, you're wasting your time. They're going to run over you. You're going to look like a bunch of jerks. So this was all for a photo op. This flex, what it really was, was to set an example to the governors, to set an example to the protesters that Trump is in charge, and then to give him an opportunity to just give a show of power and walk across the street. And he invoked certain laws to do this. All right, Caitlin, so, uh, you know, please stay with us here as as we watch this. And, and everyone, you can see here, the camera's trying to catch up. The, the president doing this uh, unprecedented moment in, in, in so many respects, breaking up uh, peaceful protesters uh, with, with flashbangs and rubber bullets, uh, saying that he is going to invoke for the first time in more than 200 years an act allowing U.S. military uh, deployment on U.S. shores uh, against Americans. Uh, you, you see the president um, walking there. Jeffrey Tubin is with me on the phone. So, so Jeff, obviously, you see the president walking across to St. John's Episcopal Church, uh, the, the, all of this, this massive security presence around him. This is an unprecedented moment. Uh, it's, it certainly is. And um, I, I think it's important when we talk about the president's authority to draw a distinction here. The president basically has carte blanche to bring the military into the District of Columbia. Uh, 
Um, the law, just the District of Columbia is not a state, uh, and the president can bring in the military if he likes. It's a very different story in, in the 50 states. Um, the act he's talking about, it has the name, uh, the, the very uh, evocative name of the Insurrection Act of 1807, and it says the president can uh, bring in the military. However, it says it must be at the request of a state government. So I don't know exactly what their justification is if they think they can just send the military in to a state. No, no, that's not what they think. In fact, in that call, they were pleading with the governors, please, why won't you call on them? Let us help you. And in what seems to be a first in 313 episodes of the Unfiltered Podcast, I think I mostly agree with Nancy Pelosi's take on this. And she doesn't sound like she's lying. I've never really watched Nancy Pelosi on television and not had the impression she's lying before. Madam Speaker, uh, Mika couldn't be with us this hour, and, and she's sorry to have missed you, but she asked. But don't worry, um, I uh, read her cell phone for you this morning. Uh, people yesterday to, to text her questions that they might have for you. And I just wanted to read one off. I just happen to have her text messages right here. Uh, and, and a question is a general question, uh, followed by a specific one. Uh, will the House be taking any steps to protect the Republic from the authoritarian actions by the commander in chief? And will there be legislation that attempts to ban the chokehold that uh, the sort of yes. chokehold that killed George Floyd? Yes, to both. Um, uh, Mr. Uh, Hakeem Jeffries has legislation about the chokehold specifically. Uh, the, the array of legislation includes any kind of use of violence that, that stops the flow of blood to the brain, to be specific. Uh, yes. Uh, and then in terms of the first part of it. I mean, she's still kind of falling apart here, but I like what she has to say here. What's interesting about that question about the use of military, the military in our country, when you say military, people sometimes think you mean uh, uh, the reserves or, you know, uh, state uh, keeping order and the rest. So people might say, well, I'm all for that. Yeah, if that's necessary to keep order. But the use of the active military is, is a completely different subject, and that's a, almost a constitutional question. Yes. Let me just say that when the president was on the call with the governors and he was saying, I have Governor, uh, General Milley here, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and he's a warrior and he always wins and he's ready to go. And all <laughs> I love her Trump. I mean, I hate her, but I love her Trump. That's so here, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and he's a warrior and he always wins and he's ready to go and all that. That was so out of place for the president of the United States, but let's not, once again, let's not go there. But the fact is, General Milley has no, he's not in the chain of command. He's an advisor to the president, advisor to the secretary of defense, advisor to policymakers, but he is not in the chain of command. He cannot order anyone to do anything. So that was a complete total misrepresentation, once again, on the part of the president as to uh, how things would work. I think he wanted to show the proximity to the commander in chief. But we really have to be very cautious. That's why I'm so glad uh, that uh, Adam Smith, the chair, Chairman Adam Smith of Washington State, the chair of the Armed Services Committee, has called for General Milley and a secretary, the Secretary of Defense uh, to come before 
uh, before the committee uh, to have this discussion. This oh, that committee that they've already had set up. Isn't that convenient? I would like to hear their answer, though. I think that would be interesting. And to the point, what do they do if there are outside agitators that are organizing? Shouldn't they also provide an organized response? That's that's a tight line to walk right there. The destruction and debris indisputable. Who was behind it? That depends who you ask. The people that are doing this are not Minneapolis residents. Mayor of Minneapolis. Every single person we arrested last night, I'm told, was from out of state. Mayor of St. Paul. Groups of outside radicals and agitators are exploiting the situation. Bill Barr, your buddy, Attorney General. A belief echoed on Twitter by the president, who tweeted 80% of the protesters in Minneapolis last night were from out of state. The problem is, according to publicly available arrest records, the vast majority of those taken into custody in Minneapolis over the weekend had local addresses. Uh-oh. This isn't the first time officials have suggested outside actors are responsible for protests. You think it's all been due to outside? I think it's definitely been due to outside. It brings up memories of the civil rights movement when in a lot of communities, uh, Southern sheriffs and politicians would raise the specter of outside agitators to deflect from le the legitimate concerns of local activists. Obviously, no way to know. It could be outside organizers. I mean, there were things like pallets of bricks dropped off and people in strange outfits with umbrellas breaking glass. Um, then again, people are really angry. I hope we get some answers. Minnesota's Public Safety Commissioner, John Harrington, says they've begun a form of contact tracing to try to figure this all out. As we've begun making arrests, we have begun analyzing the data of who we have arrested and begun actually doing what you would think is almost very similar to our COVID. It's, it's contact tracing. Where, are the, where do these folks, where is the linkage is what we're doing? And so we are in the process right now of building that information network, building that intel effort so that we can link these folks together, figure out what the organizations that have created this, and then just understand how do we go after them legally. Now, the show of solidarity by the nations around the world that have also begun protesting has been a powerful message. But it's also one that, if I'm honest and I zoom out, makes me consider larger organizational efforts. In the UK, people are joining in protests provoked by the death of George Floyd in the United States. Haley Ott reports from London. I'm standing outside the US Embassy in London where thousands of protesters are demonstrating in solidarity with demonstrations going on across the United States. They're chanting George Floyd. They're chanting no justice, no peace. They put their hands up and chanted, don't shoot me. There's a line of police officers standing between the demonstrators and the U.S. Embassy. They're also holding up signs and lots of them that say Black Lives Matter. Uh, the protests are not at the same anger level, though. Thousands marched in Sydney as well. All Showing good face mask usage, I have to say. Thousands marched through the biggest city of Australia to protest the death of George Floyd. They also called for justice. Sick of this shit. That's not a chip on my shoulder. That's your foot on my neck. I can't breathe are some of the signs. No justice, no peace is another common one. 
Now, I believe, um, I think Floyd's family has contacts, has traces back to Australia. I'm not positive, but I think I did read that somewhere. There was also protests in New Zealand. There's where a little more animated. They have like a song and dance. It's a thousand-year-old uh, dance or something like that that they do. It's something called the haka. <laughs> I don't really know much about it, obviously. But they have a specific protest dance. It's pretty powerful. There were similar demonstrations um, in the New Zealand capital as well. And a group also marched on the U.S. Embassy. That's, I mean, the signage, everything is is really kind of all the same everywhere. Now, maybe it would be. I mean, you could just argue that's the power of social media. I think you could also argue that's the power of organization. Now, how Trump has responded to this, I think, is going to affect him pretty badly in the election. I agree the protest looting and rioting, that has to stop. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. That's really a shame. One of the more funny ones, I think, is... Uh, you probably saw the pictures of the iPhones that people looted from Apple stores. Well, a little unknown, or I suppose it's known, but not well-known fact about phones in the Apple store. First of all, they're called managed devices. So they're not like a regular install of iOS. And second of all, to help you do your shopping, Apple puts a real handy pricing app on the iPhone demo units and the iPads. Well, that pricing app, which is installed via the managed services, has GPS location, camera, microphone, all on by default, doesn't prompt the user, and is geolocked to the store they're imaged for. So when you take that demo device outside the geolock, the whole OS becomes unusable. The device bricks itself and then just puts up a message telling you to return it to the exact store you took it from. They even put the name of the store in there and everything. And so these, I even saw a clip where these, uh, this lady, this, this, I mean, she must've been in her mid twenties. Uh, she has this box full of stuff and she comes running out what was the storefront window and she shouts, I got a lot of stuff as she runs out of frame of the camera right in front of a camera streaming to the internet. Uh, it's just like that kind of stuff is, is horrible. And you have to kind of, to, to, to really address this, you have to speak to them. You can't do the Trump thing where we're going to dominate them. That just, that's aggression for aggression. I think I got to really give it for this to the Seattle mayor. Um, she, I think she has struck the right tone in a way that for the last couple of days has kept things very peaceful. This clip is a raw clip, and it has some really interesting details. So I'm going to play a bit of this from one of my local stations. I'm just hearing from my producer is on her way out very soon to talk to the crowd. You just heard the fire chief kind of trying to make his case for her, asking this crowd to be peaceful and listen for Jenny Durkin because she is truly trying to fight for this community, he said. The firefighters have kind of become the ambassadors between the protesters and the officials. Incredible. Additionally, for the few, several nights, they've shut down the interstate through Seattle, <laughs> which I'm, I'm a bit concerned about as I'm about to go through there. And the protesters have taken to the actual interstate during rush hour. Um, this woman with the microphone that we have seen today, she has been in the middle of these crowds these last several days. 
She's even instructed them if there are any problems within the crowd, people getting violent, for people to get down on their knees so that the people who were causing the problems would stick out like sore thumbs. Here is the mayor, Jenny Durkin, that she's introducing. Let's listen to what she has to say to this substantial crowd that's gathered. So I want to say first, let's all take a moment to remember Mr. Floyd. But what happened to him has happened for generations. Too many, too many black men have died. Brianna Taylor, say her name. Brianna Taylor. Generations of black Americans and other people of color have too long been denied. Now you could say as a white mayor, she's pandering here. I think I can already hear some of those arguments coming to the show. I think she's connecting with their pain and speaking to it in a way that deflates the situation because they're being recognized by a position of power. of black Americans and other people of color have too long been denied true justice. We in our country were founded upon a premise that blacks were not equal. Systemic racism was built into our constitution. We've got to change that. Your voices, your voices holding me accountable are important and you should continue to raise them. We want you to march. We want you to raise your voices. We want you to continue on the path of justice. But we need you, please, to do it peacefully. And we know you can. We saw it yesterday. It was a beautiful, beautiful march for hours. <laughs> a little Trumpy in there. She even has a little Trumpy to her. But she's doing it in a way that acknowledges the crowd. And they get her to commit to certain things right here. For today and not just because of the day, but durable change for the generations. No, it ain't a re-election speech. Look. Many in this crowd have fought for years and years. Others are new to the fight. And we will do all we can, and Chief Best will talk to you. We respect and will protect your right to protest freely. But you got to do it. You got to do it calmly. And what they get her to commit to, and I'll save you having to listen to it, and I'll just summarize it, is they're going to meet there at 1 o'clock. They're going to have a meeting. And then at three o'clock, they're going to meet every day. And the, at, in the evening, they're going to update the protesters on the progress of negotiations they've made with other others besides just the mayor. It's early, but they're forming some kind of discussion. And they, if you're interested in it, they've set up a mailing list um, and all of it so they can keep people up to date on what's going on. And I think that is interesting progress. We'll see if it goes anywhere. But the mayor's approach there. She got them, for the last couple of days now, it's been pretty good. We haven't really had the violence. We haven't been having the cop cars lit on fire. Things have settled down. And now that they've settled down just a little bit, I mean, tensions are still there in Seattle. Of course, it's worse in other areas. But just getting a breath has, has made people stop and ask, well, what about COVID? Massive crowds swarming cities across the country are choosing social justice over social distancing. I could be dead tomorrow if I walk on the streets. 
but an urgent health warning from officials. There's no question there's a danger this could intensify the spread of the coronavirus just at a point when we were starting to beat it back profoundly. How many super spreaders were in that crowd? How many young people went home and kissed their mother hello? <laughs> or shook hands with their father? Of course they just shook hands with dad. Of course. We'll see, right? If in a few weeks the coronavirus is uh, uh, raging through the United States, then it'll sort of validate that the lockdowns were really important and now sort of worth wasted. Wow. Think about that for a moment. Not only, hmm, it would sort of have made the lockdowns pointless. It sort of has nullified the savings there, hasn't it? I suppose the advantage is that it's nicer out. It's not peak flu season now, so we bought time. Um, and if it doesn't spread, if infections and deaths don't shoot way up, does that suggest that the lockdowns were not worth the massive impact to our economy? I wonder about that because uh, I've been speculating, but now others are saying that it could take the economy 10 years to catch up to where it was pre-COVID lockdown. It's pretty significant. Kayla Tausche has that for us. Hey, Kayla. Hey, well, if the Congressional Budget Office is responding to an inquiry from the top Senate Democrat, Chuck Schumer, who asked the agency essentially to calculate the economic impact of the coronavirus, basically what the agency had been predicting for the country's economic growth for the next decade and how the coronavirus has taken a bite out of that. Well, in a letter to Senator Schumer, the CBO says that because of business closures, social distancing, curtailed consumer spending and a lower investment in the energy industry because of lower oil prices. Oof. Oh, that's a list of the impact that the lockdown had right there. Senator Schumer, the CBO and a lower investment in the energy industry. I want to try to get that again. It's just a little bit. It's a hard cut. Ending and a low. Nope, that wasn't it. One more try. Schumer, the CBO says that because of go. business closures, social distancing, curtailed consumer spending, and a lower investment in the energy industry because of lower oil prices. Oof. That the impact on GDP over the next 11 years to 2030 uh, would be about $8 trillion or 3% of cumulative real GDP. So, uh, Potentially, Democrats are looking to quantify exactly uh, how impactful the coronavirus is as, it, as they try to uh, get Republicans to start negotiating a new stimulus package to help offset uh, some of this economic damage that has taken place. The CBO. That seems like a very good place to start. Notes that le legislation that was passed just a couple of months ago has only partially offset that. So we'll see what Democrats do with these new numbers. Yeah, they can solve it. They'll solve it from D.C. for everybody. That'll fix it. That 40 million American unemployment number is no big deal. Wait, what? 40 million? This is a CBS News special report. I'm Anthony Mason in New York. The Labor Department has just released its weekly unemployment numbers. The data show massive job losses for a 10th straight week since the pandemic began hitting the economy. CBS News business analyst Jill Schlesinger joins us now. Jill, what are the numbers this week? An additional 2.1 Americans filed for unemployment benefits last week, and that puts us up at about 40 million Americans over the course of 10 weeks. Now, I should also note 
that the Labor Department is starting to also report on those folks who are claiming the pandemic unemployment assistance for contractors and gig workers. And that number is about 8 million. So that's not even included in the 40 million. Although these numbers are trending lower, these are still disastrous numbers, 10 times more than where we were before the pandemic hit, Anthony. No, 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 no. Hey. So when numbers get really bad like this, not only does it take forever to recover, but any kind of recovery at all looks amazing. So you can expect rebound data to psych your mind a little bit in the fall. And I'm going to play this clip from MSNBC for you because they go into this a little bit. But what they're doing is trying to warn their viewers not to buy the hype that the Trump campaign is going to be selling come the election because they are worried. That's the pretext here. They are worried that things will look better in November and that will be bad for them. Now on the pandemic, its impact on the economy and the impact of uh, both on the presidential race. Our next guest says we're about to see the best economic data in the history of the country, and it's going to play a huge role in the November elections. Joining us is professor of economic policy at Harvard University, Jason Furman. He served eight years as a top economic advisor with President Obama, also with us, former Treasury official and Morning Joe economic analyst, Steve Rautner. Well, J- you know, let, Jason, let's let us hope that mm-hmm. you, you are right. I, I've heard so many people at the beginning of this uh, this crisis, this pandemic, talking about a V-shaped recovery. Uh, but the further we got into it, they started talking about it being more of a U-shaped recovery, that it's going to take quite some time uh, to, to get out of the economic crisis that we're in. But you disagree. Tell us why. Oh, no, I don't think it's going to be a V-shaped recovery. I think it's going to start mm-hmm. out fast and then slow quite a lot. You know, look at open table. Open table went down 100%. In the last month, open table reservations have gone up infinity percent. It's the biggest increase ever in open table reservations, and we're still 90% below where we were last year. So a lot of this is the optics. You'll see one, two million jobs a month created, but you'll still be 20 million jobs short. So this is not a V-shaped recovery. It will just look like a V and be described Mm. like a V by some of the enthusiasts. There you go. I think that's a reasonable take on where, uh, what we're about to see. The hard thing to really factor into all of this is the double whammy that stores are taking right now that are just coming out of lockdown and then getting smashed up and looted. Uh, this is a real problem. The owner tells me looters ravaged the store for 15 hours straight, taking whatever they wanted from the pharmacy, liquor department, and cash register. Those are communities of color and communities that people don't have a lot of money and need those stores. And so uh, the saddest part of this is that this looting has affected people of color the most. And the lack of police protection in those stores is 
not it's not right in the end it's the community that will feel the long-term effects of looting especially the poor elderly people that don't have bank accounts this week they received their income they live check to check they cannot go to a check cashing place because the check cashing place has been vandalized so how you may be wondering can we be in a position where stores have been locked down for months then they get smashed and looted and then the elderly can't cash their checks how do we find, oh, and 40 million, really 48 million, let's be honest, unemployed. How the hell do we find ourselves in a situation where, on the whole, Wall Street seems to be doing pretty great? Well, Jim Cramer is going to attempt to explain that it really comes down to the market is blind. We've got protests all over America that many places turned into riots. What does the market do? Rallies. Dow gaining 92 points, S&P advancing 0.38%, NASDAQ climbing 0.68%. So how do we interpret this action? Is the market totally heartless, indifferent to the pleas of the protesters? Is it condemning police brutality or endorsing it? Is the market making judgments about the difference between violent protests and passive resistance? I know many people wish it would. They want the market to be part of the debate. They want it to play a constructive role in the dialogue over racial equality. Or at least they want it to go down to express some empathy for the troubled times we're living through. That's not how it works. The truth is, the market's blind because it has no eyes. It's deaf because it has no ears. It's a convenient abstraction, not a person with opinions. Of course, individual investors make judgments. But I got to tell you, until very recently, nobody was investing with an eye toward making the world a better place. That's it. You know, it's an abstraction. And when there's certain fundamentals that are good, like companies that facilitate remote work are getting huge boosts right now, huge boosts and remote work doesn't seem to be going away. And so they can just continue to invest in that. uh, And those areas will be successful. It's a lot, isn't it? It's heavy. As uh, Marty McFly would say, it's heavy. So let's talk about something that's rather uplifting. Two NASA astronauts on an historic SpaceX mission woke up on board the International Space Station this morning. On Saturday, the astronauts became the first Americans sent into orbit by a private company. It was also the first crewed launch from American soil in almost a decade. Mark Strassman has more from the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. Dragon SpaceX docking sequence is complete. A 19-hour journey into space history was over. The Crew Dragon capsule docked. Happy to be aboard. And astronauts Bob Behnken and Doug Hurley boarded the International Space Station. From SpaceX Demo 2 mission entering the International Space Station. Their journey started Saturday afternoon. This Falcon 9 rocket blasted off from Kennedy Space Center in Florida. Three, two, one, zero. Ignition. Liftoff. President Trump and Vice President Pence were on hand to witness the launch. You feel the shake over here. It's pretty, pretty amazing. A beautiful sight, a beautiful ship, too. NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine. This has been a long time in the making, and I think it's been really astonishing to see um, how it came together. During their flight, the astronauts showed off the space capsule. They named it Endeavour after the shuttle both of them flew in their first trip to space. It has a touch display screen. The capsule has been compared to flying an iPhone. Hurley said it flew just as it was supposed to. Dragon was uh, huffing and puffing all the way into orbit. A third passenger was a stowaway, a toy dinosaur. 
We do have a, an Apatosaurus aboard. Both astronauts have young sons, no doubt proudly watching their dads make space history. This is just one, one effort that we can show for the ages in this dark time that we've had over the past several months uh, to kind of inspire, especially the young people in the United States, to, to reach for these lofty goals and work hard and look what you can accomplish. It was really nice to see it. I know some of you are not so impressed by it, but I found it to be such an amazing contrast of the United States of America right now. Protests in the streets, the verge of a military takeover, curfews being set, buildings lit on fire, and rockets taking off to a space station. What a contrast. Patreon.com slash unfilter. This show lives on your support. I'd love to see a little support as I'm hitting the road. I could use some encouragement to keep on going. It's going to be a little bit extra of a challenge to produce the show while traveling with the family and staying on top of all of this, but I'm going to do my very best. It's my commitment. Patreon.com slash unfiltered. I'd love to get your feedback. Unfiltered.com slash contact. And please join us in the discussion. Unfiltered.show slash discord. I hope I get through Seattle. If something really crazy happens, I'll probably post it on my Twitter, at Chris Lass. I don't think it will. I think it's going to be okay. I think things are starting in Seattle to turn right now. That could always change at any moment. And if something immediate happens, if something that changes history breaks, I'll try to jump on it right away for you. Thanks so much for joining me on this episode of the program. Links to a lot more and context as to what, some of what I talked about on filter.show slash 313. Thanks for joining me. See you next week. Man, just calm down. It's okay.